Okay, it's great to be with you. Before we get into the message, I want you to just get your phone out. And uh, I want to ask you a little question. How many of you in the room are aware of the game Pokemon Go? Yeah. <laughs> okay. How many of you are playing this game? Come on, show of hands. Mass confession time. Some of you are like, can I confess this in church? I don't know. How many of you are playing it in church? Okay, that's what I want to know. Are there any Pokemon in church? So this morning, I'm at home. I'm trying to prepare. And um, my eldest son, who's educating me about Pokemon, and... Uh, came into the room where I'm trying to prepare and said, look, there's a Pokemon by your coffee cup. So if my message doesn't work, it's because I've been afflicted by Pokemon this week, okay, just so you know. Right, we are in uh, the final uh, week of a series on Ruth, and if you've not read this book, we'd really encourage you to read it. It's a very, it's a great book, and the teaching has been great to listen to, so if you get a chance, look, listen to the podcast. I'm going to give you a quick recap before I bring the whole series to an end. This book you can really read on three different levels. You can read it on the personal level of the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, who are the kind of three central characters. And the story is this. Naomi is married, and Naomi, because of famine that comes to Israel, Naomi leaves, goes to Moab, which is uh, another country, and uh, whilst there, her two sons marry two uh, women. They each have a wife, and in the first five verses of the chapter one, you discover that through famine and through exile into a foreign land, then Naomi, goes, Naomi and Ruth go through huge loss. Her, Naomi's husband dies, both her sons die, and this all happens in these first five verses over a number of years, and Ruth, who's been married for 10 years, is barren, not able to have any children. And what happens in the story is Naomi decides to come back to the land that she was, she's from, back to Bethlehem. And Ruth, one of her daughter-in-laws, says, I'm going to come with you. And they travel back. And the rest of the story is all about what happens to Naomi and Ruth. And what transpires is Ruth meets a man called Boaz. She, she gleans for food in his field. Boaz uh, takes her under his protection. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. And eventually the end of the story is that Boaz and Ruth are married, there is a child, there is an inheritance, there is provision and protection. So we go from barrenness and loss and emptiness and exile to an inheritance, a wedding, a birth and redemption and new life. That's how it moves in the story, all from chapter 1 to chapter 4. You can read it at a national level as well. In the story, Naomi's story mirrors what happens in Israel's own national story, okay? So Naomi finds herself having to leave her land because of famine. That is what happens to Israel. If you know the story of Jacob and his sons, Jacob and the sons leave. Uh, They go to Egypt because of famine in their own land. And they end up in Egypt in exile. And for 400 years, the people of Israel live in Egypt and become slaves there. And then under Moses' leadership, God brings the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land, eventually after another Uh, generation under Joshua's leadership into the promised land. They come back while Naomi comes back. Okay, and Naomi comes back saying, I've come back empty. I have nothing. Now, the book of Ruth is written during the time of the period of the Judges, the book of Judges. And if you know anything about that season in Israel's history, what's happened is they've come back into the land under Joshua's leadership. Basically, things were good. But under uh, this season, what happens is the people of Israel have basically begin to forget that God is the one who's provided what they have. 
They begin to kind of compromise. They start to kind of intermarry into people of other faith. That leads them into worshiping other gods, which is exactly what they were told not to do. And then everything starts to fall apart. They start to get invaded. They start to suffer loss. And people walk away from God. And then eventually they cry out to God. And God raises up a judge. And things start to get better again until the cycle happens again. People walk away from God and get compromised. And it all cycles around and around like that in the book of Judges. It's a very dark time in Israel's history. Now, note, it is what you see in Israel's history there is what can happen in our own lives. It is possible as a Christian to live a life where you come to God, genuinely get right with God, want to live before Him, and then after a while, you kind of get a bit complacent about that. You start to assume that the things you have in your life work because of you as much as anything else, and you start to compromise, and you, know, you start to just walk away from Him, and He's no longer number one in your life, and then you start to cycle into a season where things do not work out very well for you. And you can cycle, and eventually that happens. That might take many years, but you eventually come back to God and get right with Him, and that all seems good, and then you start to find yourself again sort of slipping into compromise, and you cycle around and around. You might be here today, and the, the truth is you're cycling around that, and you've done that for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And God doesn't want that to be your story. Okay, There is a way out of that, but you need to come to Him genuinely, and you need to speak, seek some friends and some help from people, but they cycle. So Naomi's story They come back to the land, it mirrors Israel's. And what happens in chapter 4 for Naomi, where there's an inheritance, a new life, and and a future hope, is a prophetic promise to Israel that although they're in a bleak season, God is going to bring a king who is going to restore Israel's fortunes. And actually, if you like, in the natural, in the next few generations, that comes to pass that it's David, and David is Israel's great king. But obviously, that's pointing towards the king, who is Jesus. And if you want to break the cycle in your own life, you have to come to the King Jesus. You need a king raised up in your life. So you can read it at a national level, but you can also extrapolate it, if you like, into a salvation story, an even bigger level, which this story is, if you like, our story. This is the story of people who are in spiritual exile, who were made to know God and walk with him and be with him and to orbit our lives around him. And yet, because of our own rebellion and sin, we are exiled. Okay, we are sent from the garden. We can no longer be in his presence. So the one we were made to walk with and know, we can no longer be with. And the argument and the rationale of the Bible is this. You were made to know him and work. life only works when you orbit your life around him. So we need to be near him, but we're exiled. And just like Ruth, who is a foreigner, we are foreigners. She was an enemy, a Moabite. We are now, the New Testament says, enemies of God. And therefore, coming home is almost impossible for Ruth. Well, to come back with Naomi to Naomi's home. For us to come back to God is impossible. Unless there is one who will stand in the gap for us, who will offer provision and protection, who will rescue us, who will redeem us. And in Ruth's and Naomi's story, this is Boaz. Boaz is the one who makes it possible for Ruth to be there. 
He rescues and redeems and protects and provides for her. That is exactly what Boaz done. You and I, in spiritual exile, need one who will rescue and redeem and protect and provide. And that is exactly what Jesus does. So this is a story about us as well. And at whichever level you read the book of Ruth, there is a theme that comes through again and again, and that is this. That even through challenges, even through bleak, difficult, barren seasons of loss, somehow God is at work. Somehow God is at work behind the scenes, even when we cannot see it or sense it or even begin to possibly believe he can be. Somehow he can work things. If you've ever been to the theatre, I... I I enjoy, if I've ever been, I haven't been very much, but going to the theatre. One of the things I like about the theatre is you can be looking at the stage and you can see the scene, right? And it's all set up with the lights and the backdrop and you can see one scene. And then you look away for a moment and you look back and everything on that scene is, platform has changed. It's like the curtain's gone back, the lights have changed, the scenery's completely shifted and it's like, it just moved like this to this, like instantly. And you think, how did that happen? And what you become aware of is, Behind the scene that you can see, there is a greater scene. There is someone orchestrating a scenario and a perspective and a picture that you cannot see from where you sit. Friends, we don't have the vantage point where we see everything right now. And what you see in the book of Ruth and you see through the Bible is there is one behind the scenes who is orchestrating the scenery in a way that we don't know yet. And Ruth didn't know yet until we see it in chapter 4. So this is the end of, or towards the end of chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 13, and it says this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, I'm going to tell my boys that when I get home, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So you read chapter 4 of Ruth. You read all the story. You get to the end. And you know what? You think, ah, it's a happy ending. We like happy endings, right? There's something good about that. It kind of leaves us with a sense of resolution and a sense of justice. We like films with happy endings, don't we? We like it. Have a see if you can relate to any of these. We like it when Marlon finally gets reunited with Nemo. That is a happy moment, wasn't it? I'm glad when that happens and they escape from the net and things like that. I liked it when Shrek married Fiona. Okay, this is a true story. I liked it when Jason Bourne makes the final getaway. But did he? We don't know because there's another film coming out. Who knows? For some of the men in the room, if that's not a slight stereotype, we like it when Rocky wins the fight. For those of you more my age, we liked it when Jason married Kylie. (laughs) How many of us can remember where we were at that wedding? I can remember where I was. It's just me and two others. Or maybe we're the only ones who want to admit. We like the happy ends, and we like the turn of events when it shifts from something seemingly bleak to something good. We like the turn. Read the stories. You'll see again and again, there's a turn coming in the story. We like those stories. So just, you know, just recently we watched 
the final of the Euros, Portugal versus France. And, you know, about 12 minutes in, we saw this scene, didn't we? Okay? I'm not a big fan of Ronaldo, but I felt a bit sad for him sitting on the grass with his hurty knee. And he's thinking, oh, I'm not going to win. Okay? But by the end of the story, there's a turn, isn't there? Because somehow they win. We like the happy endings. The problem is this. When you read Ruth chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and you close the book, it should leave you with some mixed feelings, though. Because the problem with the happy ending, depending on how we read it, is this. The problem with it is this. Is we know in our lives, not everything seems to be resolved happily. Sometimes there are moments which don't get resolved the way we want them to. Sometimes there are moments which we walk through life where the thing that we most want to change doesn't change. Where we lose a job and we don't get another one. Where the results come back from the doctor and they are terminal. Where you get that phone call that you will never forget again. Sometimes there are moments where you're looking for reconciliation and it doesn't come. And the problem is this. If we read Ruth or other bits of the Bible, other stories in the Bible, as if they are some kind of moral fable which teaches us that everything is going to be nice now. Everything is going to go in a straight line and the further you get through life, the more into kind of utopia you will land If you read it like that, you will totally misunderstand and undermine what God wants to teach you in it. In fact, what happens if you read the Bible like that and and or people preach it like that, actually it doesn't breed faith. In the end, it breeds cynicism because sooner or later you're going to hit a storm and what someone has told you that God will make everything good, sometimes you think, oh, I cannot see that right now. And it creates for you not a sense of faith, but it creates actually in the wrong way a sense of cynicism. I'm just going to throw the whole thing out there because God hasn't come through for me. The book of Ruth does not teach us that everything is going to be in a straight line. It doesn't teach us that increasingly every bit of good news we're going to get, every bit of news we're going to get is good. Actually, when you walk through Ruth, what you find out there is a lot of loss. They endure famine. They endure exile. They have to leave. Naomi loses a husband. She loses two sons. Ruth has 10 years of barrenness. And none of that is eradicated from the story. It's not like someone says, well, that didn't really happen. And we'll just forget that. That was all there. And they carried it with it through their lives. So Ruth is not teaching us that everything in our life is going to be nice. Or that there won't be seasons of real challenge and difficulty. It's not teaching us that at all. Ruth is teaching us that even through the seasons of challenge, I don't need to be fearful, that I'm not alone, that God is there. Again and again in the Bible, God says, don't be afraid, I'm with you. You can just look it up. It's there countless times. Psalm 112. I love this psalm. If you are going through a difficult season, this is a great psalm to read and know. Psalm 112 said this, Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands, even in the darkness. 
Light dawns for the upright. It doesn't say there's no darkness, okay? It doesn't say that. It says, even in the darkness, light will dawn. For those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous, surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Okay, that doesn't mean bad news doesn't come. You know, there are moments, aren't there, you get that phone call. It doesn't mean that's not going to happen. It means in the moment of the phone call, in the moment of the news that you dreaded, you don't need to be fearful. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast. It's like anchored, trusting all. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. Now, there's a hint in that passage about what Ruth is teaching us. In the end, okay, Ruth is teaching us that there are challenges that we have to walk through them, that God is somehow orchestrating things behind the scene, but he is saying to us that although in this life we won't get to see everything, there is a day coming, there will be one day coming when everything is better. Put it another way, you and I are not in the final chapter of our lives, okay? We get to read all of Ruth. We get to see it from the start to the finish. We close the book. We've seen the whole thing. We don't see that yet. We're like, we're like living in chapters one to three. But there is a day coming when we will know what chapter four is for us. There is a day coming when we will know and see him face to face. This is what Revelation 21 says. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe, this is what it's going to be like, every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In the original it also says there's no more EastEnders, just so you know. (laughs) All those bad things will go. There'll be a day when the old order has gone. We're not in that day yet. We live in a season where we're in the old order, but the kingdom of God, which is coming, is breaking into the now. We get to experience something of the future now, but not fully. But there will be a day when everything will be better. In other words, there is a chapter four coming. It's a bit like when you think of the cross, there was a day one and a day two, but day three did come. Resurrection did come. But you have to hold and wait. There is a day. The first five verses of Ruth is all about loss. Exile, famine, ten years of barrenness, um, uh, uh, death, and all provision, all protection, all hope is gone with that. Now, the final few verses of chapter 4 are the direct opposite to the first five verses. Ten years of barrenness for Ruth are replaced by ten years generations of blessing. You read the genealogy, there are 10 generations coming. It is in direct counterbalance to 10 years of loss. Do you understand what God is saying? He is saying beyond your death, there is blessing coming. There's an inheritance coming, which will outweigh any loss you have walked through in your life. There is a day coming, 10 generations of blessing. Death is replaced by new life. A new child is born. Loss replaced by gain, emptiness by provision, vulnerability by protection. There is a day coming, in other words, for you and I, when death is swallowed up by life, when suffering is healed, when emptiness and loss will be filled, 
when all sadness, all mourning will be turned to joy. And God is shaping us and molding us and walking with us and preparing us for that day. Now, I believe Romans 8 is true. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. I believe that's true. It's just I don't believe that we can always tell that he's doing that or see how he's doing that in this life. There's a book in the Narnia series uh, that C.S. Lewis wrote. If you've read those books, you'll know of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, there's another book in that series. I think it's the fifth book, which is called The Horse and His Boy. And in The Horse and His Boy... There's a character called Shasta. Shasta is a boy who lives with a man who he thinks is his dad, but is not actually his dad. And this man doesn't treat him very well. And Shasta discovers that this man is planning to sell him into slavery. So he escapes. He, He goes to the stable. He meets a horse, a talking horse, as you do. And together they hatch a plan to escape to Narnia. And they ride. And the whole of this book is about their story of escape. And the story is, for Shasta is scary. At one point, they, they are chased by what they think are wild lions. Uh, who are try- they think they're trying to hunt them and eat them. There's another moment where they're surrounded by wild animals. There's all sorts of things that happen. There's another moment where one of the lions grabs and touches one of the horses and scratches the horse, and the horse accelerates off. And Shasta has been through all this kind of journey. His journey, in other words, is really at times difficult. And it's a picture, if you like, of our lives. But he gets to the end. And towards the end of the story, Shasta at one point is on his own. He's escaped. And he becomes aware that on his own there is someone or something with him. And he can tell because he can kind of hear this breathing. And so he, he kind of waits. And eventually this something or someone speaks to him. And what is revealed is that Shasta is not on his own. But actually beside him is a lion. And the lion is called Aslan, and Aslan is the Jesus figure in the story. And they have this conversation about Shasta's story and how he came, went from there to here. And Shasta tells him about how they were chased by lions and how they were scared and how they've been through all this trauma and how he's fearful. And Aslan suddenly tells Shasta's story back to him in a way that Shasta had never seen before. And this is what Aslan says. I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last smile so that you should reach King Loon in time. They they grabbed the horse, and they thought they were being attacked, but they grabbed it to accelerate it away from invading armies. I was a lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. In other words, Aslan is saying, through all these travels, I was there. And at times I was working in ways that you could never, ever understand. God is working sometimes in ways that we will never understand until maybe one day. But there is a day coming when everything will be better. And we need to live our lives aware that that day is coming. Because that is, if you like, more real than pretty much everything else we could think of. Everybody will face that day. Everybody. We like to live in a world that just ignores 
you know, death. Like it's a surprise. But actually, for the Christian, death is like a chapter turning into a new chapter, a chapter four. It is real, folks. There will be a day, and that day will seem even far more real than this day. We kind of think it's going to be a bit blurry and, you know, we float a bit and everything's in kind of soft tone, out of focus when we're there. I think this will feel like it was a bit blurry, and that will seem completely in focus. There is a day coming. So the question when we finish a book like this, when we finish a series like this, the question you need to ask yourself and ask God is, well, how do I live in light of that? How do I live now? What do I do now? And I want to, as we, feel like, as we end this series and as we end this message, I want to take you back to a moment in chapter 2 of Ruth's story. This is like the moment where everything turns. I read a book a few years ago called The Hinge Factor, which talks about moments in history like where critical outcomes were affected by small margins. Like something hinged in that moment, some decisions, some circumstance, which changed everything else that then came to be. Well, what we're going to read now is where everything hinges. Folks, we will have moments in our lives, it might be today, where everything hinges, depending on what we do and how we respond. So in chapter 2, Ruth and Naomi have come to Bethlehem, and Naomi has sent Ruth into the field. She said, go and glean, go and collect food off the floor. And Ruth finds herself in Boaz's field. She doesn't know him. Boaz notices her, okay? God notices you, just so you know. You're not anonymous to him. And Boaz asks the workers, who's this woman? What, who, tell me about this lady. And they tell, her about, uh, tell him about her and what she has done and her journey. And so Boaz comes to Ruth and says three things. He says this, you can work in my fields. In other words, I will provide... I've told my men not to touch you. In other words, I'll protect. And whenever you're thirsty, you can drink from the well. In other words, I will give you what your soul needs. I will, give, I will meet the thirst that you carry. Boaz says, I'm going to provide, I'll protect, and I will quench your thirst. It's critical. And Ruth says to him, how is it that I have found favor in your eyes? And I'm a foreigner. In other words, how is it that I'm experiencing grace? Because this is all free, right? And this is what Boaz says, and this is critical. Okay? This is what the hinge moment is in this story for Ruth, and this is what it is for us. Okay? He says this, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people. She has left something, Okay? May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord. Note this. This is the moment. May, be, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose, whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz's comment on Ruth is this. You have made the critical decision. You have left family left your homeland, left your previous life, you've devoted yourself to Naomi, may you be rewarded. In other words, may things start to change for you because you have sought refuge under 
God's wings. It's a picture of like coming under the wings of an eagle. It is the same phrase, by the way, or the same word you get under wings. It's the word you get in chapter 3, that slightly odd moment where, to us, where Ruth sleeps at the foot of Boaz's bed and, and asks to be covered. It's the same thing. And Boaz says to Ruth, everything hinges now because you have been motivated to seek refuge from God. This is the moment. She leaves all the potential protection of her past, all the sense of security of her past, because, and makes herself a pilgrim in a foreign land, because, why? Because she thinks there's a greater refuge here. She leaves this life because she believes there's another one who is far more able to secure and give her everything she needs. That's why she moves, and that's why everything flows from that decision. Friends, you and I have to make that decision. We have to decide who we're going to follow, in whom we put our hope, where we will trust. And if it's not God, it will be something else because everybody follows and trusts and puts their hope in something or someone. Everybody does it. So it's not like, well, I'll just be neutral and I won't do it. No, no, trust me, you're already doing it. You just have to decide, am I going to put it in him or not? Everything for Ruth hinges on that one decision. I'm going to find refuge under his wings. I will trust him more than anything else. I will put my hope in him more than anything else. And you and I need to make the decision one way or the other in the same way. If you want to break the cycle, you have to make the decision. Now, notice this as we finish. From that moment, everything that happens in her life is grace. (laughs) It's just unmerited favor. It's free. There is nothing she earns from that moment. So she says to the workers, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvest. In other words, please can I, can I just pick up the stuff, the free stuff off the floor? She doesn't come with any sense of entitlement. She doesn't, she's not asking to be employed. She knows, in other words, Ruth approaches Boaz knowing that she is in need, that she doesn't have the answer to her own problems. She knows she's a foreigner, an alien. She knows she's vulnerable. She needs protection and provision. She cannot provide it for herself. She knows she shouldn't be here. So she comes to Boaz and her workers and go, can you help me? All she brings is her need. See, very often when we come to God, we want to bring far more than our need. We, you know, we want to do this thing with God where we go, well, I'll put my hope in you, but basically if I work really hard and I try hard and I like be good, then maybe you'll bless me. What we're saying is I'd like to be a worker. I'd like to earn some favor. Can we have that kind of relationship where I'm a worker for you and I earn a bit of your favor? Boaz, Ruth doesn't do that. Ruth just goes, all she's aware of is is how good he could be and how great she needs some help. That's all she's aware of. That's all she brings. When the prodigal son comes back to the father, interestingly, he says, maybe I could be a worker in his fields. Maybe I could be one of his household and work for him. What does the father do? He runs, gives him a ring, gives him a robe, gives him sandals. He's never going to be a worker. You can't come back and be a worker. You've got to come back as a son or a daughter. You've got to come back and inherit. Because when you do, when you do that, what you're saying is, I recognize everything good flows from you. It's not about me. It's not, I can't add to you. You don't need me. You are, in this wonderful way, 
through your receiving of what he has for you, you are pointing attention back to him because of his goodness. That's what you're saying. Saying, I'm aware of the sheer goodness of God and the sheer depths of my need. That's all I got. That's how Ruth comes. And everything good that comes flows from that moment. Everything. So in a moment, we're going to pray and we're going to sing. All we can do is say, I can't earn your favor. You don't need me. I know there's a mismatch between how good you are and how far away I am. All I can bring is my need. And all I can do is trust that you are all that you say you are and that you will do everything you say you will do. Let's pray together.